on? Good. Let's pray then. Father, anoint now this time. Let the preaching of the word uh, be in keeping with your design and your will, your decrees to have a people for yourself, zealous for good works. Anoint the hearer that when we leave this place today, we are equipped for the work to which you have called us and gifted us to do, that we'll be faithful stewards of that. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. Our sermon text this morning, we continue to preach through the book of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And we're in the third chapter, verses 6 through 13, a sermon that I've titled, Holiness, Love, and the Gates of Hell. The image that you see on the screen up there is the Cathedral de Justo, located in a remote village of Madrid, Spain. Don Justo Calegio entered a monastery at the age of 21, but had to leave eight years later due to a case of tuberculosis. In 1961, he began spending what little money he had on reused bricks and other salvaged materials. Every day for 50 years, he has worked mostly alone on this cathedral, on a plot of land that he inherited from his parents. At age 92 now, he has the help of a nephew to do some heavy lifting. He hopes that someday the Roman Catholic Church will be allowed to use it for worship. Among other features is a 120-foot high dome modeled after the famous St. Peter's. Don Justo Collegio has no building permits and no training in architecture or construction. I think that you would agree that this is a very impressive man and a very impressive building for one person to do every day. I'm sorry? Yes, day in and day out for 50 some odd years. Far more impressive is the church fashioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Its foundation is the prophets and a handful of salvaged fishermen, a few political zealots who sought the overthrow of Rome and a reused tax collector. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail, would not withstand the church. Dr. Michael Heiser, who died this past February 20th, wrote a highly acclaimed book titled The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. There's a section in that book wherein Dr. Heiser discusses the geography of the area of Caesarea Philippi near Mount Hermon. And this is where Jesus made that promise to his apostles. In the Old Testament, that area is known as Bethshan, a very evil place. You will recall from the 22nd Psalm, David wrote in his prophetic suffering, a type of which Jesus would fulfill on the cross, many bulls encompass me, wild bulls of Bashan surround me, large, powerful bulls from an evil region of Old Testament thought. Caesarea Philippi was dedicated to the pagan god Zeus. Jewish tradition holds that the place Jesus made this promise is also the same place that the sons of God in Genesis 6 descended when they took to themselves the daughters of men and bore offspring known as the Nephilim, who were giants. In Jewish theology, the spirits of those dead giants became demons. Recall that Jesus said, On this rock I will build my church. About this, Dr. Heiser writes, the rock which Jesus referred to in this passage was neither Peter nor himself. It was the rock on which they were standing, the foot of Mount Hermon, the demonic headquarters of the Old Testament and the Greek world. We often presume that the phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, describes a church taking on the onslaught of evil, but... The word against is not present in the Greek. Translating the phrase without it gives a completely different connotation, he continues. The gates of hell will not withstand it. It is the church that Jesus sees as the aggressor. He was declaring war on evil and death. Jesus would build his church atop the gates of hell 
he would bury them. Slightly different spin there on that text if you're familiar with the arguments between Roman Catholicity and sort of classic Orthodox uh, Christian position of that rock being the profession that Jesus Christ is the Messiah of God. And I think that both can be held simultaneously, not the, not necessar- certainly not the Roman Catholic uh, translation of that passage or the tradition in which they hold that Peter would be the rock. In other words, that that was the establishment of the papacy. We reject that. But there certainly is room for us to see where in ancient Jewish thought that particular place became, as was known as the headquarters of demonic activity. We know from Acts 17 that Paul and Silas, or Silvanus, as he's alternately called, spent about a month teaching in the synagogues of Thessalonica before some jealous Jews stirred up some lewd fellows of the baser sort. Nobody puts that like the King James, right? I think, I think there's some rabble-rousers, some other translations call it a bunch of riotous fellows, but lewd fellows of the baser sort just says something, right? It, it, almost, doesn't, it almost doesn't need definition. Somebody said to me before uh, a service this morning, said, there's a meaning to that shirt. And I said, no, this shirt is the meaning, right? This, the, the meaning is in that, right? Their evil was such that Paul and Silas had to escape by night. And soon after fleeing, Paul became very anxious about the state of the Thessalonian converts, knowing that they were facing persecution and affliction. Were they keeping the faith? Were they angry at Paul for leaving? Did Paul really care about them? Chapter 3, verses 4 to 5. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain when I could, when I could bear it no longer. When I could bear it no longer to think about how you're getting on over there in Thessalonica, when I just couldn't take it anymore. Paul was losing sleep. Probably, probably wasn't even eating. We know his affection and love for them as earlier in the letter, he refers to them, he refers to himself and, and, and uh, Sylvanus. We were like a nursing mother to you. And in another place in the letter, we were like a father with his children, exhorting and encouraging them to walk in a manner worthy of God. So with the gates of hell and the record of Paul's ministry in Thessalonica in mind, we come prepared to today's text, which I will now read from chapter 3, verses 6 through 13. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers... In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see your face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I have to tell you that last week the pastoral search committee held our monthly meeting. And our focus was on the skill of preparing and delivering a sermon because as we we begin to, at some point, review candidates uh, to succeed uh, Pastor Gary, we want to be able to, above all things, know that they know how to preach the word of God and bring it to God's people. Amen? So we came across what author Brian Chappell in his Christ-centered preaching book calls the 3 a.m. test. Quote, the 3 a.m. test requires you to imagine someone awaking you from your deepest slumber with this simple question. What's the sermon about today, Pastor? If you cannot give a crisp answer, you know the sermon is probably half-baked. 
Thoughts you cannot gather at 3 a.m. are not likely to be caught by others at 11 a.m. Well, knowing I would be preaching this week and how fresh the rest of the committee is on judging a well-prepared sermon, I called down fry up from heaven to consume Brian Chapel, who hasn't been seen since Tuesday. <laughs> but, but here is my crisp... Here is my crisp answer to the 3 o'clock test that I want you to be able to get a big picture of today's sermon on. The gates of hell cannot withstand the holiness and love that comes by spirit-born faith and prayer. The gates of hell cannot withstand the holiness and love that comes by spirit-born faith and prayer. And there are three truths in the text I see to support that 3 a.m. answer. One is the failure of the tempter. The second is the triumph of the righteous. And third, the way forward. Encouraged, I hope, by those truths, I will then discuss my fourth point, which is, what about us? The failure of the tempter. Acts 17 and portions of this letter inform us that these Gentile Thessalonian converts suffered the same things from their countrymen that the Jews did from theirs. What kinds of things? Over in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Paul describes the hardship further in verses 17 to 18, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. As we quickly read through these things, and there are a number of them, we want to certainly take lightly. He's making a comparison. What you suffered, your country, our countrymen, my countrymen suffered as well. That the people that, that persecuted, the, person that, the people that killed the Lord Jesus, the people that killed the prophets, this is the kind of malignant person that you're dealing with. We need to be mindful of the impact that affliction and persecution has on people. Again, it's very easy to read. You may even hear of the martyrs. You hear these various things. But you have to remember and be mindful of the impact that affliction and persecution has on people. The schemes of the devil can cause anxiety, stress, tension, infighting, and other forms of psychological and emotional distress. By it, some abandon the faith. Listen to this portion of a larger essay, the subheading of which is titled, Your Brain on Stress. This stress response starts in the brain in your amygdala, a part of the brain involved with emotions such as fear. The amygdala sends a danger signal to the hypothalamus, the part of your brain that regulates many key bodily functions like body temperature and heart rate. The hypothalamus then activates your sympathetic nervous system, the alert response, which comes with an adrenaline boost and kicks your body into high gear so you'll be ready to face the potential threat. But after fight, flight, or freeze, your hypothalamus activates another stress response system, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. The HPA axis works to keep your sympathetic nervous system engaged on high alert. On a physical level... This releases cortisol, the stress hormone, into your system. While cortisol helps your mind and body handle stressful events in the short term, chronic stress can cause that HPA axis to become dysregulated. It may release cortisol in fits and starts in response to more events, meaning you're feeling stressed more of the time, and that's when stress can take a toll on your mind and body. That's what's going on inside this little three-pound chemical bath in our thick skulls. There is something going on in there that happens when we become stressed, when we become persecution and affliction affects us. You know this to be the case. 
And you know, some of us, what that toll of stress is on your body in the form of muscle aches and fatigue and irritability and insomnia. And you bring the stress home and it affects the family and you carry it into your social life. These converts under considerable stress had seen the Jews drag Jason and some of the, excuse me, some of the brothers before the corrupt government authorities in Thessalonica, Thessalonica and accused them of high treason. They say there was another king, Jesus. They knew Paul had to flee in the middle of the night because of the Jews that likely wanted him dead. How difficult it must have been for them to send Paul and Silas away after the bonds of Christian love and fellowship that had formed in such a brief time together. Imagine if a trans woman police officer showed up and arrested Pastor Gary for open-air preaching and you didn't hear from him for a month. He'd be worried about you, and you would be worried about him. This affliction, this persecution is made increasingly worse by demonic activity. Anger is a feeding and breeding ground for demonic activity, so Paul warns the Ephesian believers. We know from Scripture the devil, the god of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. Paul tells Timothy the devil has taken unbelievers captive to do his will. That was something we need to remember about unbelievers and in the world we're in today. They have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And Paul is saying we want to be patient with them. We want to teach them. If peradventure, God will grant them repentance and they will recover their senses and come to the knowledge of truth. Why? Because the devil has taken them captive to do his will. Paul tells the Corinthian church that pagan idols are indeed demons and warns in another place to be aware of those who teach doctrines of demons. All false religion is demonically inspired. Do not be ignorant of demonic influence. We shouldn't give all of the unseen realm, all of the spiritual stuff up to the unbelieving world to do what they want with it. It is very true that there's something going on in the spiritual realm that we don't see, which is behind so much of what troubles us so deeply. As if we don't have enough of a struggle in ourselves, the war between the flesh and the spirit. All of this simultaneously going on in the life of these new converts. They have like passions as you and I. And, you know, do you ever watch an epic medieval battle scene? They're in, in many types of movies, right? And so the castle or the fortress is being attacked. And inside the fortress you have these warriors, and they're trying to reinforce the doors. And the gates that the other side is pounding against to get in with their battering rams. So you have the scene where you have these two sides against this one gate, each doing their thing. And then they often bring in more men to push hard against that door from the inside to prevent it from being stormed. Well, that's what the enemy is doing in the face of the gospel spreading through Thessalonica and surrounding areas. The gates of hell are trying to withstand the gospel and love and holiness that it is producing in the lives of God's peculiar people. We are a peculiar people. You know, we are all very peculiar Some of you are very strange, but we are all peculiar people, right? We are the royal priesthood. We are the holy nation. This is the ferocious battle being waged in the unseen realm, and much was at stake. The quest stands upon the edge of a knife. Stray but a little, and it will fail to the ruin of all. Yet hope remains while the company is true. What we see in the text is that the company is indeed true. The tempter has failed to thwart the gospel and the spread of the kingdom in Thessalonica. The the tempter, the great dragon, that serpent of old has failed in Thessalonica to hold back the assault on death in Hades executed by the church. The gates have given in. Paul's labor has not been in vain as he feared. And so we see next the triumph of the righteous. I want you to keep in mind 
So in our translations, we always see the gates of hell. Really, that Greek term is translated hell, but it's also Hades. Hades was the place of the dead, Sheol in the ancient uh, Hebrew text of the Old Testament. So it wasn't just the place where believers went. Believers and unbelievers went to Sheol. That's where the dead waited. That's where the, was sort of the holding place for the dead. And the picture is, of course, the church sort of storming those gates of hell, going in and, 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 and conquering and, and, and binding the strong man. <clears throat> what we see next in the text is that the company is indeed true. Timothy had brought good news, Paul says. Interestingly, the, the phrase good news here is the same translated everywhere else in the New Testament for preaching the good news or preaching the gospel. It's only here and in Revelation 10, 7 that it's used for something other than salvation. And you can feel Paul's joy. It's palpable as you read the text. I hope when we read the text, I know Gary has encouraged us all to try to read this every day for a month. And when you're doing that, Again, because it's not so long, but, but stop for a minute when you're reading Scripture and say, what is this saying to me? What is this telling me about Paul? What kind of person is Paul that he's so bound up with these people? He was so relieved and so thankful. You know, when parents send their Christian children off to college, particularly secular universities, but not exclusively, and when they're living on campus, they wonder... Are they being faithful? Are they giving in to the peer pressure and the corruption of the world that is at enmity with God? Imagine the parent shows up to college for a surprise visit near the end of the first semester. And they pick up a copy of the school newspaper. And in the poet's corner section of the publication, they see a poem titled, The God of My Youth. And in that poem, the author shares memories of family gatherings and Christian friends, and they speak highly of their parents who gave them such a great example and who loved them. And you get to the end of the poem, and you see your child's name as the one who penned the sweetest thing that you've ever just read. But it gets better. So you see young people throwing a Frisbee around on the campus grounds, drinking beers, listening to Mick Jagger music and bad-mouthing the country out there. And you see another student that you know and you ask if they've seen your son or your daughter and they say, oh, he or she is down the street on the town common with some Jesus freaks praying for the unborn. You can't, you, you can't, you can't even catch your breath like that as a parent. I mean, you, your soul is on a holy fire. Well, take me now, Lord. My, my work is done on earth here. This is where my child is today. I think that's the joyful heart of Paul here. Despite the afflictions that the converts in Thessalonica were, ex- were experiencing, were enduring, and despite Paul having to cut out so quickly, he hears gospel news about their faith and their love. Oh, and they remember us kindly too. Well, that they can't wait to see us. They feel the same way about us that we do about them. And Paul's so exuberant that he starts writing this letter immediately. He says, but now that Timothy has come, and that's when you know Paul just started writing that letter as soon as they got the report from Timothy. Not last week Timothy came. Now Timothy comes. Paul's running around looking for ink and parchment as soon as Timothy finished the report. And he likely stained that parchment with tears of joy. Boy, Paul loves the church. He loves God deeply. And therefore he loves God's people deeply. And Paul's been completely apprehended by Jesus, who has led Paul and a host of other captives captive and given gifts to men and women in Thessalonica. Before I get into verse 8, is anybody else here really hot? Is it uncomfortably stuffy in, in here? Do we need to open a door? Yeah, we can open that door. If we could have one of the ushers or one of the gentlemen open that door for us. Open up a couple windows. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're so used to being locked up and bottled in for winter, man. Come on. So let's look to verse 8 then to see how Paul's life is bound up in the life of other saints. And what an example that this really sets for us. Okay? How, how his life is so, is so intertwined with theirs. Okay? Verse 8, the third chapter, he says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. The, the Bible paraphrase, the message translates it thus. 
knowing that your knowing that your faith is alive keeps us alive. The New Living Translation, it gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. The Apostle Paul calling Joel Osteen. Hey, Joel. Joel Osteen, yeah. Yeah, Apostle Paul here. Hey, when you're all done in your 17,000 square foot mansion this morning, and when you're all done greasing your hair back and polishing your white teeth, I want you to come here and tell you I'm living my best life now. This is my best life now, connecting with the saints. Right? This is where it's at. This is the life of the church. Paul's in and out of prison, beatings and everything else. This is what gives him life. This is what sustains him. I wonder how much the church... This, I don't. I get a little crazy when preachers try to say things that make the people feel bad. Like, do you really love the church? And I'm not going to ask you, do you really love the church? I want to encourage you to be able to love the church more, for it is your inheritance. Paul says that we are partakers, all of us together, in the riches and the inheritance of the saints of light. Paul was able to write it because Paul, it, it, it was internal to him. It was intrinsic to his being. I mean, he can't even find sufficient words to thank God for all the joy that this news has brought him. It's a joy that they express before God. They tell God about their joy. But that joy is for the sake of the Thessalonians. They're not all excited about themselves. They've got joy for the Thessalonians. As Paul and Silas are looking out for the interests of others with the mind of Christ, see Philippians 2. So you see the power of the resurrection at work. In these brothers and sisters, you know, Paul and Silas were in great distress and affliction. And now they've been uh, comforted by the Thessalonian converts who, despite their own afflictions and distress, continue in faith. The same degree of faith they evidence back in chapter one, a faith in God that has gone forth everywhere. Paul said their faith was a comfort to Paul and Silas. Their faith was a comfort to Paul. You know, if you're suffering today and you're here in church, let me say this to you. Your faith gives me comfort. It gives me comfort about you. I don't have to worry about you. I can see your faith. One of my spiritual mentors, a father in the faith, I would call, 80 years old, went to be with the Lord in his spirit last month. And so I hadn't seen him in about six months. He used to, he would call me occasionally. Uh, he was an answer to prayer. I've, I've shared a little bit with some of you about him. He was an answer to a prayer of mine. You know, 20 years ago when I asked the Lord to bring an, an older uh, gentleman Christian into my life that could be an example to me in a number of ways, um, probably as a result of having read Scripture about Paul and his need to have people imitate him as they imitate Christ. And, and he would call up. I work at Pepsi. He'd be coming through Holden. He'd give me a call. Hey, you want to go get a bite to eat at Val's? And he would always pay. He always insisted on, never let me pay. And he would always just be imparting something to me, always imparting something to me from the Word, always imparting the Spirit to me, always encouraging me, look, make sure whatever church you're in, you don't have some CEO pastor type. This is what's destroying the church, he would tell me all the time. We don't need CEO pastors. You know, the churches, we all have gifts for one another. He was just this faithful, faithful brother like that. Uh, so I hadn't seen him, though, in about six months or so when I learned of his leukemia diagnosis. And I couldn't visit him in the hospital. And about two months after his treatment there, he came home. He was beginning to get strong enough to live out what doctors said were his remaining six months to a year. And while he was home, he had a stroke. So this man who always had a gracious and an encouraging word or a teaching or an exhortation lost the ability to speak. And I wondered how he was doing in his spirit since he couldn't tell me over the phone. And he had spent so many years ministering to the souls of lost men in prison. And when I finally got to visit him in the hospital the last week of his life, I walked into the room, and when he saw me, he threw his arms up to the sky, he cast his glance heavenward, he smiled, this big old familiar smile, and tears were just streaming down his cheeks. Because he wasn't able to communicate and talk to me. He wasn't able to ask me, how are you doing? He didn't know how my spirit was. When he saw me walk in, his thought was, he loves me. He remembered me. He's here. 
and his wife and I prayed together while we all held hands and he shook his head in affirmation and we sang some gospel hymns to him and I anointed him with oil at his wife's request and his body language was joyfully saying amen and he was just able to audibly speak hallelujah, thank you, and I love you. That was it. That's all he had to say. Just, again, leaving one more example for me to follow. Friends, that is holiness and love that comes from spirit-born faith and prayer that the gates of hell cannot withstand. Not now, not ever. And, And here's another triumph of the righteous in verse 10. So, verse 10, we read, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So so the tempter's attempt to tempt the righteous has not only failed, but now Paul and Silas want to come see them face to face and disciple them some more. They know that there are things lacking in the new convert's faith. We'll run into those things later in the letter as Paul addresses things like sexual immorality and brotherly love and working with their hands and the coming of the Lord. The number of things he's going to call, uh, he's going to cover. But Paul and Silas want to see them grow in the faith. This is what we should want for one another more than anything else, is to just see one another grow in the faith and to do something about that. That's, that's our priority. My priority should be to see you grow in your faith. It's more important to me than who you're voting for for president next time around. The faithful, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? James wrote, well, in chapter 1, we read that Paul and Silas constantly mentioned the Thessalonians in their prayer. Is it a stretch to imagine that it was a faithful prayer that God heard and worked through to keep those converts established in their faith despite afflictions and sufferings after Paul left? Not at all. In fact, I would say without that prayer, it likely would not have happened. Because God works through prayer in that way. God can sovereignly work without prayer, but we know that they did pray and we saw what happened when they did. Why should we sit around and guess, yeah, I wonder if that would happen if they didn't pray. No, that's what happens when people pray. The Lord Jesus said when he comes again, will he find faith on the earth? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. The third truth from the text that demonstrates that the gates of hell cannot withstand the holiness and love that comes by spirit-born faith and prayer is what I call the way forward. It was come as no surprise that the way forward is the same as the way that got the Thessalonians to where they had already come. In Acts 2, I'm sorry, Acts 24, 14 to 15, Paul said before the governor Felix, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Indeed, the way, the way is recorded six times in the book of Acts. The way is the gospel. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said in the context of the plan of redemption, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Paul has learned that God alone, Father, Son, and Spirit, must and will direct his way. Verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul has learned that God alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit must and will direct his way through the maze of this life and all the way home at last to glory. It is a way of love and holiness that comes by Holy Spirit-born faith and prayer, and the gates of hell cannot withstand it. So once again, Paul prays to the way maker. (laughs) I wasn't aware that a song came out a few years ago called The Way Maker. Are we familiar with this at all? I looked that up. Interesting words, some of them. You are here, moving in our midst, 
I worship you. I worship you. You are way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. Always working, always moving. I know, I know, I know my God can and my God will. The way was a plan of redemption, right? It was the plan of redemption that made the way forward in the first place. It was the way forward that announced in cryptic form in the Garden of Eden and more clearly articulated to Abraham, the father of all who have faith, who had the gospel preached to him by Scripture. It was the way revealed in the covenant God made with David. And finally, of course, the way was fully revealed by our Lord Jesus Christ through his life, death, on the cross, the resurrection, and his ascension to the Father's right hand, where he ever lives to make intercession for the people of God and therefore able to save them to the uttermost. God dropped a 50 megaton holiness bomb, and the intense heat of that holiness incinerated the gates of Hades, such that people came out of the graves and walked around their old neighborhoods in Jerusalem. That was mentioned last week. Hey, Jacob, where you been? <laughs> rotting (laughs) literally the gates of Hades unlocked so that people could get out without exception the shepherd and overseer of our souls will direct all our ways if if we boldly by faith and prayer approach that throne of grace it will happen no other way moreover the way forward is the way home as he says in verse 12 to 13, right? So before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints, which is when that's our homecoming. If we are to be blameless in holiness, we must be ever increasing and abounding in love for one another and for all. See, some of our English translations do not sufficiently forge the link between love and blameless holiness. For example, the NIV at verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Whereas the New Living Translation, for example, which is a paraphrase, but it's it's similar to the ESV, may he, as a result, make your hearts strong, blameless, and holy as you stand before God our Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes again with all his holy people. Amen. So you see that in both the, the English Standard Version and the New Living Translation, and others, I'm sure, our hearts are made blameless in holiness as a result of increasing and abounding love. You see that? God is love. God says, be holy for I am holy. Jesus says, if you have love for one another, love one another as I have loved you, people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I don't have time to give a full uh, definition of love. For that, you must study and meditate on 1 Corinthians 13. But I think C.S. Lewis summed up love in one sentence very nicely. Love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. That's a great definition. Love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. And it's an other-centered state of mind and spirit. Let's apply it to John 3.16. Anytime someone tries to tell you what a scripture means and they give you a translation, they give you their own words, plug those words back into the context and see if it still works. It does here. For God was so desirous of the ultimate good of the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That works. That works. And so to be blameless is not to be sinless. Right? Because we can't claim we're sinless because if we do that, John says in another place, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But it is to live in total dependence on God for forgiveness and repentance. To be holy is to be set apart, to be so very different, to be so very other as God is. A steady wish for the loved person's ultimate good is not our natural disposition. We are too self-centered. Paul knows, for he said so to the Ephesians. One of the great prayers in all Scripture, he says, Therefore I bow my knee before God and Father, after all all the families on earth are named, that he may grant, according to the riches of his glory, that you would be strengthened by his Spirit in your inner person, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. 
and that you being rooted and grounded in love might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the depth and height, the breadth and length, that you may know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and be filled up with all the fullness of God. Scripture says that he who does not love abides in death and without holiness no one shall see God. When Jesus returns, will our hearts be established blameless in holiness before our God and Father? Yes. If we insist by faith and prayer that the Lord make us increase and abound in love. You see that? He has to make you more concerned about others than self. You're just not capable. I'm just not capable. It's just not in us. Even as born-again people, we have a new capacity for that, but we need that capacity consistently fed and strengthened and nurtured and, and made real and alive and animated. That is what it is to live in the reality of God's sovereign grace. Since this is so, let's just take a moment to ponder my fourth point. What about us? We have seen how Paul and Silas and the Thessalonians spiritually thrived despite persecution and distress and affliction. But this letter is in part also a legacy left for us to carry on. I doubt I need to persuade most of you that our nation has been collectively given over to a reprobate mind to do what ought not to be done, filled with all manner of unrighteousness, abortion, homosexual pride, transgenderism, racial strife, abuse of power, manipulation of capitalism to advantage the few at the expense of the many, the destruction of the family. Our culture in America is becoming physically and spiritually habituated to strife, to divisions, and to tribalism. What is tribalism? Well, Merriam-Webster describes it thus, a strong feeling of identity with and loyalty to one's tribe or group. Now, in some ways, that can be healthy, of course, but not when your tribe or group has a worldview that clashes with reality as God has decreed it. Tribalism has devastating consequences for humanity when this happens. And when I say our culture is becoming habituated, I mean that Many are forming attachments to ideologies and identities that mimic the pathology of addiction. So just like an addiction, when you have a chemical a change in your body, you have to consistently take the drug more and more. And the more you take the drug, the more your body chemistry has to adjust. And the more your chemistry adjusts, the more you have to take it. And you get in this fierce cycle from which you cannot break free uh, except for some supernatural intervention. That's the way that we have become attached to these ideas and to these groups and to these agenda, uh, identities and to these genders. And, it, and you know what it's like when you hear someone say, now it's time to be honest with ourselves. You know, people get angry, right? They, they become overly stressed trying to defend their worldview. This happens to, I bet it happens to every single one of you like it happens to me. You know that this is true. You know what it's like when you hear someone say, gender is a spectrum and there are several genders. You know exactly how you feel when someone says that or when someone says, my body, my choice. You know exactly what happens. Your body chemistry immediately goes into chaos. It's like when you put a Mentos candy in a bottle of Pepsi-Cola, right? It just, you feel it in your stomach. You feel your face get flushed. Your lip starts to quiver. Your eye starts to twitch. This morning, Aurora said to me, some people remind me of guinea pig poop. Now, I'm going to give you a little context on this, okay? What she meant, what she meant was that her mom and I often remind her she's got to clean up the guinea pig poop around the cage, right? But she said it right at the point when I was putting some finishing touches on the sermon, and I was like writing this paragraph. And I said to myself, if I'm honest, that is exactly how we think of other tribes sometimes, the people we disagree with. When someone says something like that, oh, gender is fluid, you know, gender is a social convention, this and that, the first thought that comes to my mind is, you remind me of guinea pig poop. <laughs> Although I might not say it that way, that is exactly what's going on inside me. We get, get going, don't we? It's an awful, awful state to be in. It, it, it's, it's, it's not where we want to be. You cannot possibly love the other person when that happens. Don't think I'll just check the, give them the gospel box and walk away is a loving response because it's not. Okay? Don't waste your time or the Lord's glory. 
And not because the other person doesn't deserve to hear it, but at that point, you're not really loving the person. You're just treating them like somebody you can give the gospel to and check a little box. You've got to learn how to engage, maybe. You've got to learn how to... How then shall we live? Well, the church is always under assault. The church is always under assault. Dylan Mulvaney, a trans woman, a man celebrating 365 days of girlhood, has his face on a special collectible Bud Light can. Nike features him in an ad modeling a woman's sports bra. A thin chest, chestless, face-painted shell of the man he was created to be, poor soul. Poor soul. God save him. Hershey's is honoring women by featuring delusional, disfigured men on its candy bars. Feel empowered yet, ladies? Scoffed Federalist CEO Sean Davis. A woman in Oregon is suing the state because, quote, according to the lawsuit, state officials denied the woman's application to adopt, not because of lack of financial resources or any history of abuse or neglect, but because she acknowledged that her Christian faith informs her that gender and sex aren't a choice. End quote. A city in Canada passed an ordinance making it illegal to protest drag story hours at children's libraries where men dress like women and perform highly sexually charged physical acts in front of little kids as young as four and five and six years old. A pastor in Canada has been arrested repeatedly for protesting these sites. Brethren, this is demonic activity. This is demonic. There's no other way to describe it. This is demonic activity. Make no mistake. Satan has never, ever changed his pattern. He always comes after children. Always. Always. Be it the fires of Molech, the Hebrew male babies, the Jewish male babies under age two at the time of Jesus' birth, the libraries and classrooms of kindergartners, or the womb. The thief comes only to kill and to destroy. He will never change his ways. But the church has got to change its ways and align itself to this response that we see in Thessalonians to affliction and persecution because this is and has gotten into the church and eventually it is unmistakable, I don't think. I, I don't think that it's... Let's, let's take a look at... If you have your bulletin, take a look at the front cover. I'm going to draw your attention to the mission statement there, which reads, Sovereign Grace Chapel exists to worship and glorify God by equipping the saints for the work of ministry, calling people to become disciples of the risen Christ and caring for those in need of salt and light in this fallen world. Sovereign Grace Chapel maintains the gospel as of first importance and the scripture as the ultimate authority. We pursue Christ-centered unity and love and labor together with the Lord in the process of our sanctification. To God alone be the glory. Memorize that. Dilvin Mulvaney is not our enemy. The LBGQT plus lobby is not the enemy. Planned Parenthood is not the enemy. Public schools are not the enemy. Let me be clear by stating we must do all we can for such people if we are salt and light in the world, and so we should be involved in every way possible, in government, in, in school committees, in selectmen, in representatives if you can be, or doing the work that build us. All of that stuff is good and, and true. We impact it with a biblical worldview. We bring that worldview to bear. We do. We're empowered to do it. But we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, (laughs) but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. If we let things disturb us in a wrong way, if we follow the world's way of mocking our enemies, if we only send memes casting aspersions on the unbelieving, then we have become altogether like them and no longer are concerned with their ultimate good as far as that may be obtained, which is to say we are not loving them. 
And we will experience all of that stress induced bodily in our bodies and psychological malaise that I articulated a few minutes ago, and we will carry it into the church and in our families, and we'll destroy both in the process. doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. If you are not on if we are not this type of Thessalonian people, if we are not that, we will destroy ourselves from within. We won't need the external world to do it. Our enemy is the enemy behind the puppet enemy. <laughs> right? It is spiritual warfare. Bear in mind the image of the castle being stormed, right? So all of these beliefs and actions, that enmity with God, all the friendship of the world, each new twisted, hell-hatched view of humans is like another group of warriors on the other side of the massive gates of Hades trying to shore it up, trying to prevent the kingdom of God from breaking through. Church, the purpose of my preaching is that us believers will be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith, 1 Timothy 1.5. And when we come together as a body after a week away, we need the comfort from knowing that our mutual faith is well-established, that we missed each other, that we long to see each other, that we pray for each other in the manner which Paul exemplifies throughout his letters and in this one. If we speak of things about the culture, let's do that in a way that is shaped by that mission statement. And we're going to do some work on that. We're going to do some work on how do we make sure that that mission statement, that thing, how is our vision, how is that going to be incorporated? How do we do that in our ministries? What does that look like so that we stay on track because it's right where this is in the Thessalonian text? As that statement reads, the gospel is of first importance, which we should know by now is not just saving sinners from hell, precious as that is. The gospel is not just sinners get saved from hell. The gospel is that Jesus Christ has been exalted to the Lord of the universe and all authority in heaven and earth are his. New creation has begun with Jesus, the first fruits from the dead. God is among his people now by the Spirit and the day is coming when we will be with Jesus in new bodies, a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That word gospel comes from back in the Old Testament when some dude came running from the battle saying, we won, the king is king still. That was gospel. That was what we eventually called evangelion. That was the good news. The king's alive. You know, we're, yeah. It's not conspiracy of madness to say that attacks on Christians are going to increase manifold in all kinds of ways, from exclusion to the culture to violence like we saw in Nashville where Christian children and adults were targeted and killed by a woman slash trans man because Christians reject modern conventions of gender. They were killed because they were Christian. And our attitude is not to be, oh, poor us. We defend our rights afforded by the government, of course, but government is not going to storm the gates of hell. They lack the resources and they're not adequately armed. Plus, for most people in the government, they would be guilty of treason if they stormed the gates of hell since that's where their Father and Lord lives. The gates of hell cannot withstand the holiness and love that comes by spirit-born faith and prayer. Our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way in this world. Make us increase and abound in love for you and for all. And in so doing, establish our hearts blameless in holiness before you, Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And every saint that wants to love in this manner said, Amen. Amen. We'll have the music.